Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. So how do we begin to decipher the past week's events in Brazil? The significance of the rightist mob assaults in Brasilia, the nation's capital, by supporters of the country's former president, Jair Bolsonaro? What do those events bode for the country's new administration headed by the returned president, the left-wing Lula da Silva? And what are the broader implications for the country, the region, and well, beyond in this era of anti-democratic trends? Joining us today to explore those recent developments in Brazil and provide some broader context beyond the headlines is Alexander Main. Alex is Director of International Policy at the Washington-based pro-democracy NGO, the Center for Economic and Policy Research. A specialist in Latin America and the Caribbean, Main's areas of expertise include U.S. relations in Bolivia, Ecuador, Honduras, Venezuela, as well as Brazil. His analyses have been published in a variety of outlets, including the New York Times, Foreign Policy, the Los Angeles Times, The Hill, North American Congress on Latin America, and Le Monde Diplomatique. Welcome to WRT, Alexander Main. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thousands of supporters of Brazil's former president, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, stormed and ransacked Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court, and presidential offices in Brasilia last Sunday, protesting what they falsely claim was a stolen election. Thousands of riotous demonstrators surged into the seat of power some days after Bolsonaro flew to Florida and the January 1st inauguration of Lula. How do we begin to understand these recent events? I'm wondering if you could, might provide some, well, some historical broader context for our listeners who might not be acquainted with goings-on in Brazil. Sure, yeah. Well, I'll give it a shot. So I think your listeners are probably familiar with most of the basic facts, which you've already gone over to some point uh, where you've had uh, on the 8th of January, on Sunday, um, exactly a week after the inauguration of Lula da Silva, um, you had uh, thousands of Bolsonaro supporters that were bused to the city of Brasilia from different parts of Brazil and then proceeded to march on the uh, Plaza dos Tres Poderes, which is the plaza of the three powers. It's this spot where... Um, Brazil's Congress and Presidency and Supreme Court um, are all uh, sort of joined, so to speak, are all in, in that same area around the plaza. And they uh, proceeded to enter and to ransack uh, the Congress um, and then uh, the Supreme Court um, and then to some extent the Presidency as well. Um, and they made an enormous mess, and it took many hours to dislodge them, in part because uh, the security forces of Brasilia, uh, one, were too meager, and two, um, were not particularly uh, seeming to be interested in dislodging um, the protesters, uh, which raised a lot of eyebrows. Uh, but finally, they were. Um, there were, I think, some genuine fears of a coup, um, and I think that was really the intention uh, behind this. Um, for quite a while now, Bolsonaro supporters, since the election uh, that took place in October and early November of last year, in which um, Lula da Silva, the former president um, from the left-wing Workers' Party, defeated uh, the incumbent um, Jair Bolsonaro, um, 
who had been president for four years and uh, really is a far right uh, figure. Uh, and we can go into more details about him if you like. But uh, following that defeat, um, Bolsonaro, much like Trump, who Bolsonaro admires um, and clearly uh, sees as a model, he did not recognize the results of the elections uh, and sort of let his, his supporters um, carry out uh, some, you know, rather aggressive protests uh, blocking all sorts of major arteries um, around the country uh, and wreaking havoc. Uh, and, you know, there had been a lot of talk of trying to provoke a coup and a lot of faith among Bolsonaro supporters that the military would intervene to pre prevent um, Lula from taking power. And then, of course, once he had taken power, um, I think part of the idea behind this massive protest was to generate chaos to sort of um, provoke a military intervention, create a pretext for the military to get involved. And then they uh, expected, um, many of them anyway, expected the military to, to then take their side um, to remove Lula, um, to remove the Congress, and to reinstate um, Bolsonaro and presumably some sort of military dictatorship. Um, needless to say, that didn't happen, but there were, uh, you know, a lot of fears that, that that's what would play out. And I, I would say that there's still a lot of fears of that, and particularly given the fact that these protesters managed to have such easy access to, you know, these major federal institutions of the country, uh, that they weren't prevented from entering. In fact, uh, there's a growing amount of evidence that the security forces that were present, um, many of them anyway, uh, really encouraged and accompanied the protesters. And um, more recently, uh, Lula has said that there is evidence um, that there were people inside of these institutions that also uh, were coordinating with the protesters in order to allow them in. Um, You're listening to Alexander Maine with the Center for Economic and Policy Research, Washington-based pro-democracy uh, NGO. We're talking, of course, today about recent events in Brazil uh, and trying to place those events of the past week and, and before in some broader context Per usual, we'll be opening up the telephone lines at 608-256-2001, extension 9. If you want to join us, we'll open the phones at half past the hour. <clears throat> Alexander, I want to return to something uh, that, that I think is important here for the context. Um, let's talk a bit about Bolsonaro and the nature of his, of his regime. Uh, how would you describe it? and what it has meant, especially for, say, the, the, the sprawling country's popular classes? Absolutely. So Bolsonaro um, has been in Brazilian politics for decades, but he was really on the sidelines for a long time and wasn't taken seriously. In fact, he was considered to be a bit of a, a clown, a, someone who uh, liked to say very provocative things, racist things, misogynist things. Um, and, and really, frankly, fascist things. Um, big defender of Brazil's military dictatorship um, that, of course, ruled the country from 1964 to 1985 following um, a coup that had U.S. support um, against a democratically elected government in uh, 1964. He was a big fan of... Um, of that um, military regime and he let people know that he was a fan and even would say that he considered that they were too soft on Brazil's leftist even though um, they're estimated to have uh, killed and disappeared um, over 3,000 um, you know left-wing activists uh, during the dictatorship uh, tortured many more 
of course, many fled into exile as well. Uh, it was a period of enormous repression, but it wasn't enough for Bolsonaro. And so these were the sort of provocative ideas that he would put out there, never really taken seriously until there was the beginning of a sort of a political collapse in Brazil that uh, I would say really began to take shape uh, following the election of um, Lula's successor, um, Dilma Rousseff, also from uh, the left-wing workers' party. She won very narrowly in the 2014 elections, and her legitimacy was immediately contested by the right-wing opposition. And she ultimately was impeached um, in what many consider to have been an, an illegal impeachment because there was no um, real... Uh, in, under the Brazil's under Brazil's constitution, uh, in order to carry out uh, an impeachment, there has to be a crime of some kind, and and there was no crime that was ever confirmed um, uh, that was used to justify her impeachment. So it was really a, a political trial against her, um, carried out by a very corrupt Congress that was very upset with the fact that she had um, sort of allowed. Uh, anti-corruption efforts to um, reach the Congress and for investigations into uh, key leaders uh, in Congress for their corruption to uh, be carried forward. And I think that was one of the main reasons she was uh, removed. Um, but she was removed and replaced by a very right-wing, um, all-white, all-male uh, uh, cabinet that um, immediately began to impose a very conservative and neoliberal agenda, um, worked to break the back of, of unions um, and reverse a lot of the progressive social policies of the Lula and Dilma administrations that had ruled Brazil from the early 2000s until 2016. Um, and this is what I think created a sort of political vacuum um, in which Bolsonaro uh, saw an opportunity um, through the sort of very vicious um, political and media campaign that targeted the Workers' Party. Um, a lot of public opinion in Brazil began to see the Workers' Party and the entire political classes as corrupt and needing replacement. And so Bolsonaro sort of appeared in this context. And of course, he'd never had any real leadership of any kind and didn't have the opportunity to be involved in any big time corruption. Um, of course, he has had in the last four years, and we can discuss that as well. But uh, at any rate, he appeared sort of as a more squeaky clean kind of candidate and his very anti-systemic kind of discourse pleased people and frankly mobilized um, a lot of Brazil's disenchanted middle classes, particularly from the more white southern regions of Brazil, um, that were very opposed to the Workers' Party's progressive policies that um, included affirmative action um, policies in higher education um, and included, you know, other forms of support to uh, low-income and largely Afro-Brazilian communities, primarily in the north of Brazil. Uh, this is something that they were very distraught about, and um, and they could relate then to uh, Bolsonaro's sort of very racist um, uh, and paternalistic sort of vision. Um, this is something that they could relate to because they um, felt that they'd been displaced in a sense um, that, you know, a, a bit like the replacement theory in the U.S., you know, you find different versions of that in, in different places, but this very sort of racist idea. Um, and also kind of identifying um, the, um, you know, Afro-Brazilian majority in Brazil as not being truly Brazilian. So this idea that uh, the only truly Brazilian ones were these sort of more traditional um, and overwhelmingly white middle classes belonging to the southern part of Brazil. So this is the sort of context in which um, Bolsonaro came to power. And what really enabled his election in 2018 was the fact that Lula was in jail 
uh, following an extremely politicized um, investigation, um, corruption investigation and trial and jailing led by a judge slash prosecutor. Um, Brazil's judicial system is is very quaint, very antiquated, um, and one in which there aren't juries and where the judge can serve as prosecutor as well. And so um, in some cases, and certainly the case of Lula, uh, that can lead to enormous abuses. I want to I want to continue yes. I want to continue on with Lula. That is uh, in contrast to Bolsonaro's rise. <clears throat> excuse me. There's this remarkable political comeback of of uh, Lula da Silva. Talk about that some. Uh, clearly, you know, you touched on, on, well, basically the framing of him, his jailing and so on and so forth. Uh, yes. <clears throat> but clearly he had this base of support, of mass support uh, that, you know, pe- um, plummeted, him, plummeted him, excuse me, uh, to the presidency. Talk about that. Talk about who Lula, what, what, who Lula is, was, in what he's represented. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Lula is very much from the working class of Brazil. Um, he came from a family in southern Brazil that was absolutely destitute um, and, you know, began working as a child, really. He uh, never finished um, high school and uh, ended up um, getting involved in the labor movement in the Sao Paulo region uh, with the metal workers. He was very involved in that movement. He was a metal worker himself. He lost, um, uh, he lost a couple of fingers, actually, as a worker. And that's almost a point of pride. And he often holds up his hand and, and it's, you know, it shows, you know, it's one of the things that sort of reveals his origins along with his sort of general sort of style and uh, he's someone that became a very important union leader and a very important figure opposing the military dictatorship as well in the 1970s. And he was jailed for stretches of time uh, in the 70s. Um, and, and he became sort of the unifying figure of the Brazilian left at the end of the military dictatorship. And when democracy was progressively restored. Um, He and his party, the Workers' Party, uh, were very involved in um, the drafting of the new constitution, the 1988 constitution of Brazil. And then after that, he went on to become sort of the um, perennial uh, candidate of the left in presidential elections. And that was true through all of the 90s. And then finally won the election in 2002, um, in part because he uh, formed some alliances uh, with more um, centrist uh, political sectors. And so he finally won that election. And then the Lula years were great years for Brazil, frankly. That was the period of, you know, 2002 to 2010, uh, roughly, and a period um in which, uh, along with the sort of commodities boom that helped the economy of Brazil, uh, there was also an enormous amount of social investment that took place. Um, and the inequality in Brazil was reduced. Uh, tens of millions of Brazilians were brought out of poverty during that period, thanks in large part to the, the social investment that took place, and primarily Bolsa Familia, uh, which provided... Um, subsidies to poor families um, as long as they put their kids through school. Um, And he left office uh, with nearly 90% popularity, an enormously popular figure, Um, and one that uh, the conservative sectors of Brazil, who very much dominate uh, the private media there, um, including the um, very powerful Globo network, um, they were determined to ensure that he wouldn't be reelected. And so they sort of jumped on this idea that he was a corrupt politician 
And then, of course, you had the car wash uh, anti-corruption operation. It's referred to as, as car wash because it started with a car wash in Curitiba. Um, the Lava Jato operation uh, that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, became increasingly politicized and really was driven by a, a judge and a group of prosecutors with a political agenda that became increasingly clear and uh, later leaks um, revealed, leaks of their communications revealed that there was an enormous amount of illegal uh, sort of conspiring going on between the judge and the prosecutors in Lula's case. Um, and also that they had a clear political agenda, and that was to ensure that Lula would be sort of removed from the political picture for the 2018 elections. They wanted to make sure that he wouldn't be there, and they succeeded. They um, carried out a very quick trial by Brazil, Brazilian standards, a very, very quick trial, very expedited, um, and one that completely um, violated his due process rights. Uh, and based on extremely flim flimsy evidence um, that would be laughed at in most courts around the world, um, he was convicted of corruption and sentenced to six years um, in the spring of 2018. Uh, he, up until then, had been planning on being a uh, presidential candidate. He wanted to continue to be a presidential candidate, even from jail, uh, but that was blocked. Um, and so, sort of at the last minute, another candidate was found for the Workers' Party, Fernando Haddad, a very capable candidate, but not with the same sort of charisma that Lula had, um, and not with the same national profile either. And, and so it was a very uphill battle for the Workers' Party to try to get this guy national recognition um, and to associate him more than anything with Lula so that people would know that if they were voting for Adaji, they were voting for Lula's agenda. Um, but ultimately, uh, Hadaji lost that election and, you know, many people believe, I believe certainly, uh, the polling also suggests that if Lula had been allowed to run in that 2018 election, um, Bolsonaro would never have been elected and we wouldn't have seen the mess that we've seen over the last uh, four years in Brazil. I want to stay with, Bolson <clears throat> excuse me, with Bolsonaro for a moment. That is his tenure and what it, what it has meant in economic terms and social terms. Uh, in the countryside for, in, for indigenous peoples, but also his, <clears throat> excuse me, his um, denialism in regard to the COVID pandemic and what that has meant. No, absolutely. So, you know, again, uh, like Trump, but he went further than Trump, I think, in his denialism. Um, and he, you know, basically encouraged people to carry on life completely normally during the height of the pandemic in Brazil, opposed, um, you know, any sort of lockdown um, and, and aggressively opposed measures taken by individual states in Brazil um, to enforce, you know, social distancing measures. Uh, and he discouraged people from taking vaccines. Uh, and, you know, this ultimately did a lot of harm. Um, and you know, led to something like, you know, close to 700,000 deaths in Brazil during this, uh, the period of the pandemic. Um, of course, the pandemic hasn't completely stopped, but um, certainly the amount of deaths um, have, has receded enormously in Brazil. But uh, many um, Brazilians, you know, are still extremely upset by that, having lost friends and family members and so on, and would like to see him uh, tried for that crime of the denialism. Um, but then, you know, also, you know, some of his other policies, there was a continuation of some of the neoliberal policies from the previous um, right-wing government and very anti-worker policies uh, that were in place. And, uh, you know, where he did the most damage um, outside of the pandemic uh, is with the Amazon, where he, um, you know, basically um, prevented uh, the law, um, 
that protects the Amazon from being properly enforced. He removed sort of the enforcement measures. He cut the budget of the institutions um, that were in charge of enforcement of um, the protection of the Amazon against uh, illegal deforestation, illegal mining and illegal logging, um, illegal agriculture in protected zones of the Amazon. And uh, we saw uh, deforestation um, of the Amazon reach new heights. Um, absolutely, uh, you know, inc increased um, enormously during the period of Bolsonaro. And, um, you know, that's really due to his, his policies and his refusal um, to, again, enforce these protections very close to mining interests, uh, the logging interests, and the agribusiness interests that, um, you know, would go into the Amazon and, and got a lot of support, uh, certainly a lot of monetary support to his campaign from those same sectors. And it also appears that um, the business people that um, found the buses, rented the buses, and had the buses uh, take those protesters to Brasilia on uh, January 8th um, were largely from this agribusiness sector as well that profited greatly um, under Bolsonaro at the expense of uh, the Amazon. It has uh, all the... It that's has, part of its record. It has all the earmarks of, of a, uh, a classic fascist agenda. Uh, that is the backing of big business uh, to mobilize people uh, to perhaps... You know, to create crisis, really, to, a deepening crisis in, in perception and reality, uh, to aid, aid, you know, various other, you know, countless no numbers of people from other places, other other class locations. Uh, so yeah, I, um, you know, we're not supposed to say the F word on the air, but fascism really rings here. Oh, absolutely. Um... I don't think it's the same sort of very organized um, disciplined fascism that um, you know we saw in Europe in the 1930s, uh, but uh, you know it certainly uh, bears a lot of uh, the same ingredients, um, which involve, of course, uh, sort of the hero worshiping of of a leader and kind of blindly going along with. Um, his grand vision uh, for Brazil, um, you know, enormous amount of, of racism, anti-immigrant, um, anti-black, anti-indigenous, um, certainly anti-LGBT, um, an enormous amount of misogyny as well uh, that Bolsonaro and his supporters sort of took pride in. Uh, you know, Bolsonaro said that, you know, his greatest weakness was to have had a daughter, for instance. Um, just an extraordinarily crass, <laughs> vile <laughs> sort of individual um, promoting, you know, these extremely reactionary values um, and, and to great effect. Um, to great effect, I think, thanks to social media. And, and he had an enormous backing in social media, and arguably uh, that's where... He had sort of the most um, political power um, and a power to manipulate as well. An enormous amount of disinformation that was spread as, as well. There was this um, idea, for instance, you know, that uh, Lula was going to uh, close down churches throughout Brazil that was spread and that a lot of people believed during this last election. Um, and, you know, Lula's, Lula lost a lot of votes among ev evangelicals because many of them believed that to be the case. Uh, so an enormous amount of disinformation that kind of helped um, bolster him throughout his uh, administration and then in uh, the campaign where he got quite close to winning. He lost by around 2 million votes, but, you know, one and a half percentage points um, around there. And, uh, yeah, indeed, he was someone who, again, um, 
thought that the military dictatorship was a golden age in Brazil. Um, clearly aspired to trying to replicate that. He filled his administration with military officers in many civilian positions as vice president, um, was a military officer, uh, one who opposed the protection of indigenous territories in the Amazon. And um, yeah, he was an extremely nefarious uh, individual and um, he's still around. He's in Florida at the moment in Orlando, but he'll be going back to Brazil presumably soon. At least he's announced that. Uh, and his supporters remain mobilized. And I think the strategy going forward, if they don't succeed in provoking a coup, which doesn't look like that's going to happen, it doesn't appear that, um, you know, there's this sort of critical mass within the military to allow that to happen. But instead, I think where they might be successful is in sort of generating chaos and creating a system of... Um, you know, that renders uh, Brazil less governable uh, for Lula, um, you know, making his administration very, very difficult going forward. You know, prior to the attack on the, uh, on the well, the centers of power in, in Brasilia uh, last Sunday, thousands of Bolsonaro supporters camped outside army, the army headquarters, also in Brasilia, with many of them convinced that the military uh, and the defeated Bolsonaro were about to execute a secret secret plan to prevent Lula's inauguration. Apparently, you know, especially based upon what you were saying just now, that somehow the, the military, the army stayed out of it. Can you talk about that? Especially, you know, you've referenced the earlier uh, coup in 64 and, and that dictatorial ro- rule until, what, 85? Talk about the military and the... Well, apparently the miscalculation on the part of some on the right uh, that the army would would uh, intervene. Sure, I mean yes, they they did miscalculate. Um, however, uh, you know, as I was saying earlier, it is clear that you have um, within the security forces that you had some coordination and collaboration with the protesters and with you know, Bolsonaro-linked uh, leaders, political leaders in the country. And I think this is kind of the frightening takeaway that, no, there wasn't a coup. The military wasn't prepared to go that far, but that you had significant sectors in the military that allowed, you know, total bedlam to be unleashed in Brasilia um, on, the, on the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidency without any intervention for hours and hours. Um, uh, You know, it's just extraordinary what the protesters were able to get away with. And so um, there are strong suspicions that, you know, fairly high up within the security apparatus, Bolsonaro has some strong support. And now, to his credit, uh, Lula um, is very committed um, he and, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, the judiciary, generally speaking, um, are committed to doing everything they can to purge the security forces of those Bolsonaro elements. Um, he's starting with the presidency, and he said that, um, you know, it's clear that there are many people, m- much of the staff within the presidency that are Bolsonaro supporters that can't be trusted and so um you know they are going to be removed particularly if they there's any sign that they were supporting a coup um and they're prepared to do uh something similar within the security forces that'll be interesting and that'll be a test um at the moment lula has a stronger hand politically uh, than he did just a few weeks ago um because what the protesters did was just so outrageous. Uh, you really have nearly the entire political class, left, center, and much of the right, that is opposed. Um, and I think many on the right trying to dissociate themselves uh, from Bolsonaro at this point. And 
it's put Lula in a position where he can, you know, crack down on these coup-supporting elements, um, certainly within the security apparatus, and, you know, probably has the political support to do that, which was not a given because um, the Workers' Party and the left-wing coalition within Congress is a minority. Uh, Congress is dominated by uh, right-wing and far-right um, sectors at the moment. Uh, so, so he's in a, you know, sort of paradoxically, he's in a position of strength now after this uh, incident. But the big question is how far uh, will he be able to go and whether his moves to purge the armed forces of pro-coup uh, elements uh, will generate some sort of backlash from within the military. I think that's the big question now going forward. The phone lines are open if you want to join us with a comment, a question, an observation for our guest today, Alexander Main, talking about Brazil. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We don't have long in the hour, so come on in if you want. According to the New York Times this week, the, the, excuse me again, uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of what went on last weekend, Brazil's Supreme Court said Tuesday that it had ordered the arrest of Anderson Torres, the secretary in charge of public security in the capital. Uh, Torres had earlier served as a justice minister for Bolsonaro. Again, according to the Times, the nation's top officials have also turned their focus uh, to the political and business elites suspected of inspiring, organizing, and aiding the rioters. More than 100 companies thought to have um, ha- are thought to have helped the protesters. Can you go a little bit further with that? You mentioned it, you referenced it earlier, but I'm very interested in, in this question of this kind of elite backing of, uh, you know, of what went on. Sure. I, I think, uh, f- first of all, I think it's a sector of the elite, and, and I don't think it's the majority at this point. I don't think the majority of the elites of Brazil are currently pro-coup, if anything, because it's not good for business um, for most of them. But there's certainly uh, a lot, including, as, as I mentioned, the agribusiness, uh, a, a good deal of the agribusiness sector, um, you know, particularly the, those that raise cattle, which is an enormous industry and that requires a lot of land and um, that has been contributing to the deforestation of the Amazon um, and, you know, mining uh, sectors and and others, uh, particularly those, again, that benefit from the deforestation of the Amazon. So I think, you know, we have yet to see exactly who is behind the funding of this big operation um, last Sunday, but it, it appears that those sectors certainly played a big role. Um, more broadly, I think a good deal of Brazil's business and financial sectors um, were actually hoping for Lula to win, as they saw, um, even though they do not like Lula and want to see him removed at the earliest opportunity, I'm sure, uh, they still saw him as a sort of safer bet going forward. Um, in part because, you know, they did quite well during the Lula years. As much as they try to paint him as a communist and so on, um, capitalism in Brazil did very well under Lula. And I think there is some memory of that. Um, But also because the alternative, Bolsonaro, um, he was too unpredictable, too chaotic. um, And uh, again, sort of bad for business, um, just giving Brazil a really terrible image. Um, and, and so, you know, ultimately their, their distaste for Bolsonaro, I think, prevailed. And, and that's part of what helped Lula get elected. Lula um, did form an alliance with uh, part of the center-right in Brazil, a significant uh, amount of the center-right in Brazil. And his new cabinet has, you know, a lot of people from the center-right. They're I would say that key ministries like the the ministry for the economy 
um, which is run by Fernando Haddadji. Um, they're, they're in the hands of uh, left, mostly in the hands of left-leaning politicians. But uh, there are a lot of right-wing politicians in his cabinet. And so I think, you know, thanks to those alliances and so on, um, Lula was simply a more savory candidate to um, a big portion of the Brazilian elites uh, than Bolsonaro. Chuck, is, our engineer, is telling us that we do have a caller with a question or comment. Hi, Steve, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good afternoon to the two Al's, and thank you for this uh, rapid response to uh, contemporary history. Uh, Alan. Um, As an armchair historian, I'm always looking for historical parallels. And recalling the Zika virus public health emergency in Brazil of 2015 to 17, was there a parallel governmental mishandling of that lesser epidemic to the contemporary COVID catastrophe? Was that health emergency politicized at all? Or am I making much ado about nothing? And is the, the Zika outbreak now a mere uh, trivial historic detail. Thank you. Thank you, caller. So, yes, Zika indeed was, um, there was a real epidemic in Brazil. And, uh, and of course, Zika, it has sort of malaria-like symptoms. It's particularly dangerous for pregnant women. Um, and and I remember I was in Brazil at that time, and there was certainly a, a big hullabaloo, understandably, about Zika and its dangers and lots of signs up and um, lots of sort of radio announcements and so on. I don't get the impression it was politicized so much and and maybe because um, it, I think, reached its peak around the time that Dilma had been removed. <laughs> and so there wasn't, there wasn't a good target for the right-wing media at that point um, in power in Brazil. That's my sense, anyway. Maybe they would have politicized it had um, had had it peaked during uh, Dilma's administration. But you know, we can only speculate. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, you know what we did see during the Dilma administration was, uh, she, you know, she was blamed for every problem. And I'm, I'm sure Zika would have been one of them had had the timing been right. Um, and uh, yeah, she she ended up again, um, largely I think because of the fact that she allowed anti-corruption efforts to be pursued uh, to a much greater degree than it had ever happened in Brazilian history, um, and in many cases, you know, leading to uh, corruption charges against colleagues of hers from within the Workers' Party, but largely because of this. Um, you know, she she was removed, and then there was an attempt to sort of quash a lot of these corruption investigations, and to a large extent they were, although um, ultimately the guy who replaced uh, Dilma um, in the presidency, Michel Temer, uh, ended up uh, jailed for corruption himself, um, you know, once he was no longer in the presidency. You know, we have but oh, eight or nine minutes left in the hour, Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, that is, um, <clears throat> the Biden administration, of course, responded to the um, uh, events of, of last weekend uh, by you know, con- condemning them, speaking out against them, and so on. Uh, but that skirts, in some sense, the longer history, the bipartisan longer history of uh, U.S. policy toward Brazil. You referenced it a little bit before. But I think it's important, especially because you write about it uh, so well, uh, to talk about U.S. meddling uh, in in the whole goings-on. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, unfortunately, this is something that's largely overlooked in the contemporary history of Brazil. Um, and, uh, and it played an important role. So, uh, you know, we can look at various things. Um, I think, for instance, it was very clear that the U.S. Uh, sort of provided, um, at the very least, sort of diplomatic cover for the impeachment 
of uh, Dilma Rousseff in 2016, again, seen by many Brazilians and many around the region as, as a coup, as a sort of parliamentary coup, because she was removed without any real basis. Um, and, and the U.S. sort of lent pretty overt diplomatic support to that. John Kerry was sent uh, to uh, Brasilia and met up with the foreign minister and praised the interim government at, at that time. Dilma was no longer um, formally in office, uh, but she had not been formally removed either. There was the impeachment trial that was underway in uh, the Senate of Brazil at that time. And to express support for that sort of interim government while the trial was going on, um, you know, sent a very clear signal to the political class there that the U.S. was okay with, with what was going on politically. Um, and, and then there were other things that happened. Um, uh, at the time, Vice President Biden uh, also um, really welcomed the right-wing unelected government that took control of the country after um, Dilma's removal. But I think the most problematic thing of all was the fact that the U.S. was deeply involved in this anti-corruption operation that targeted Lula, specifically the car wash operation. Um, the Department of Justice, um, and in fact, they were very open about this, um, you know, had various agents that were collaborating with the prosecutors in that case. Um, it was really impossible for them not to see what everyone else was seeing, which was that the whole case against Lula, the charges that were filed, but also the sort of very mediatized um, and politicized um, in judicial investigation and then trial of Lula and so on, uh, was, you know, something that was very much driven by this political right-wing agenda of the judge and the prosecutors. Incidentally, the judge in that case, Sergio Moro, um, was uh, later named the Minister of Justice for Bolsonaro, uh, which was seen widely um, as a quid pro quo for having gotten Lula out of the way during the 20, 2018 election. But at any rate, the U.S. was heavily involved in all that. Um, there are more recent revelations that show that, you know, at the time of the Lula uh, judicial um, actions in particular, um, the U.S. had sent uh, something around around 15 um, Department of Justice agents to sort of collaborate. And they did this without the knowledge as well of uh, the Ministry of Justice, which under the cooperation treaty between the Department of Justice and the Ministry of Justice in Brazil, um, it's a requirement for uh, the U.S. to go through the Ministry of Justice. But no, they had a direct relationship instead, um, again, violating the treaty, a uh, direct relationship with the prosecutors involved in the Lula case. And, you know, clearly provide them, provided them with a lot of support. Um, we know that they provided sort of evidentiary support, um, um, but they they were very heavily involved. A lot of questions have been raised about that, including by um, some members of Congress, and the Department of Justice has failed to respond to those questions about U.S. involvement in that whole operation. You know, we're getting right down to the end of the uh, end of the wire, and I often like to end on a positive note. What does what does the return of Lula and a turn to the left? What what might it mean for the broader region. Of course, there was the pink, pink tide of over a decade ago. Um, uh, progressive governments uh, th throughout South America, certainly. Um, what do you see in the offing? Well, this is a great question and also a vast topic that merits a whole other show, frankly. Uh, we'll, get but, to, we'll have to get you back. <laughs> we'll have to do that. But um, at, at any rate, I think, it, you know, it's very auspicious, the fact that Lula's elected now, because there's been sort of a broader change throughout the region. The region, as you mentioned, there was a pink tide uh, during the first decade of the 2000s, um, where the region swung heavily to the left. Um, the majority of governments were left-wing and kind of engaged in a common project, including, you know, 
um, pressing forward with uh, various forms of Latin American integration. Um, it was a very positive time for sort of Latin American cooperation and, and kind of, you know, working on a common social agenda, I would say. Uh, and, and then all of that uh, ended up being derailed, um, you know, in uh, the second decade of uh, this century, uh, since 2010, really, through a combination of um, unconstitutional removals of presidents and um, and also, you know, the ne an economic downturn that hurt the left-wing incumbents in various countries. And so there was a big shift to the right. And now things have shifted to the left. The, Lula is just the latest, but, you know, in the last in the last year, um, a little bit more than a year now, you've had Chile, uh, you've had Honduras after 12 years of very repressive um, and corrupt right-wing government. Uh, you've had, of course, Colombia. Um, all have swung to the left. Colombia, that's a real historic first. They've never had a left-wing government. And now we're seeing Lula and you know, they're talking to each other and they've already made clear that they want to sort of pick up, pick things up where they left, were left off in the first decade of the 2000s and return to building uh, um, a common agenda for the region and a strong social agenda, a strong progressive agenda, and one that involves, I think, greater independence from the United States. And I think ultimately that's probably a good thing for Latin America. Well, Alexander Maine, we're going to have to uh, leave it there. Uh, this has been an enlightening hour for me, and I hope for our listeners. So, yes, I'd love to have you back at some point. You've been listening to Alexander Maine, Director of International Policy at the Washington-based pro-democracy NGO, the Center for Economic and Policy Research. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Rowe, and I want to thank Jade Producing and Chuck engineering and and i'll say goodbye and talk with you next week thank you alexander main with information that would never be reported disregard the mainstream media distorted we come and listen and supported live and direct we come and never pre-recorded with information that would never be reported disregard the mainstream media distorted we come and listen and support